box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box! Oh no. It is a means to summon us. Welcome to Filmstrip's Hellraiser series. Explorers in the further regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. Featuring Nick. Come Jay. And Jay. This is it. The old homestead. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and details of the Hellraiser films. Tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of Hellraiser Hellseeker, the sixth installment in our Hellraiser franchise. Is this the longest one we've done so far, Jay? This, this may take the cake when it's all said and done at nine entries. We'll count that up. In a minute. Uh, starring Dean Winters, Ashley Lawrence, and Doug Bradley. Directed by Rick Bota. Released in 2002. Budget of $3 million direct to video. Now let's let's think about that for a second. We did the five Alien films, including Prometheus, and we did AVP and AVPR. So that's seven. So yeah, by the time this one is over, we will hit chapter nine. And that, that'll be our longest retrospective. Um, ever. Uh, the only other one that equaled it to uh, Alien at that point was Batman, because we did all seven of those ultimately. So, uh, Or seven of the ones we were going to do. We never did the you know 1966 stuff, because that's not our gag. But anyway, yeah, six chapters in, man, and I on the website, I'm going to tell folks right now, when you look these up on the site, they're all going to have Roman numerals after them, whether they really do or not, just so you can keep it straight, because I had no idea where this one was supposed to fall in line of things. And had I not have combed through the internet, I would have never known this was supposed to be the sixth Hellraiser. But interesting to note about this one is they offered it to Scott Derrickson, the guy that directed and wrote, co-wrote the last one, and he said no and moved on and did Exorcism of Emily Rose. I think he chose wisely on that, but uh, they didn't get him back. So they went with Rick Boda, the well-established uh, director of photography, did a lot of horror movies, done a lot of TV. He's directed stuff too, but mostly known as a DP. So, uh, And he'll actually do the next three. Um, up until part nine, he directs all of these. So um, it's in new hands again, but they come back with an idea to um, you know put Hellraiser mythology into this. And Doug Bradley is responsible for Ashley Lawrence being in this as Kirstie. He saw the script, liked it. Um, much like the last one, it was another story that they were able to rewrite around uh, uh, Hellraiser and add Hellraiser to it. And he said it would be really nice if we got Kirstie back in here. So he talked her into what essentially amounts to the cameo that she has at the beginning and end of this flick. Yeah, I think the conversation would go, hey, Ashley, I make a shitload of money for doing like two minutes worth of work. I see that you don't, you're not working very much right now. Right, right now, do you want to do the same thing and do about two minutes worth of work and actually get a decent paycheck? I think that's kind of how it went. So, <laughs> Because let's be honest so far. I mean, a lot of, you know, after the last movie, Pinhead was nothing more than a cameo. I mean, it was essentially the same type of performance as part one in, Hell, in the first Hellraiser where he was in it for a couple minutes and same thing here again and the same thing in the last movie too i mean he's only in it for a few minutes and the same thing goes for her it just seems like that's kind of the whole like thing now can i can i say the thing that i'm most intrigued by these movies is the way they're marketed like the covers of all of these films are his face 
and stuff. But I would tell you now, he hasn't been the central focus of maybe maybe one of these. You know, I guess you could say the fourth one he was in some ways because that was all about the Le Marchands, you know, uh, uh, Le Marchands, you know, trying to take him out or whatever and atone for their puzzle box and stuff. But, I, you know, the third one was most certainly about Pinhead, but the second one really wasn't, and the first one wasn't at all, and that last one wasn't either. And and we'll just say it now, neither is this one. And I, that's why I find it funny. Like, they have these stories that are very independent of one another for the most part, especially after it's the almost like, it's almost like it's, it's almost like these movies weren't written to be Hellraiser movies. Well, they weren't, that's the thing. They weren't conceived as such. These have been turned into Hellraiser movies on the back end. Now, you know, I, I said last time I liked the way they had done Inferno. And if they were going to go that route, that was a, a decent way to use these characters. They've essentially done something very similar here. Like, you know, I know people in the Hellraiser fan community and stuff out there, uh, you know, Bradley included, all hate the fifth one. They're like, ah, oh, it's terrible. There's nothing to do with Hellraiser, blah, blah, blah. But they almost all universally like this one. And my question to you is, I don't understand how you can like one and hate the other because they're basically the same kind of story. It's a, a shady guy making shady decisions who realizes too late that he's basically being tortured in hell by demons. Now, for different reasons, but that's really what goes on. It's uh, pretty much the exact same movie, minus, <laughs> yeah. a few, a couple, minus a couple things here and there. I mean, you got this guy trying to – almost like a mystery of what's going on. And, you know, mm-hmm. you got like, you know, the random Cenobites showing up and weird dreams and imagery. And in the end, it turns out, yeah, you're dead. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it is. And I guess – that's as good enough reason to do a plot summary. And I'm going to do something different. I'm actually not going to give you a plot summary, folks. I'm going to tell you what really happens, and then we can walk back through all of it. What happens is this guy named Trevor is married to Kirsty in uh, you know later adult life or whatever, and because he's a cheating bastard, pretty much, decides that he wants to get rid of her, so he gets a hold of the puzzle box, gives it to her on a fifth anniversary present, makes her open it, but she double-crosses him and tells Pinhead, I'll give you five souls in exchange for mine, so basically three of Trevor's hookups, one of his dirty co-workers who's in on helping him uh, kill me for the insurance money, and ultimately old Trevor. And as things turn out, that's exactly how it goes down. But she makes it look like all these people die at Trevor's hands. So the cops are on him, all this stuff. But really all that happens is she shoots him in the head. They run off a bridge and she walks away with the puzzle box in hand as credits roll. That's that's really what happens in this movie, right? Basically, <laughs> I think that I think that's what happened. I, I, I got to be honest with you. I watched this movie twice. Wow. <laughs> trying to kind of figure out what the hell was going on. And what you said right there actually makes more sense than anything said in this movie. So either you're very, very, you know, a very good observer other, or otherwise you found a really good Wikipedia page. <laughs> I, I'm going to say now I'm a good observer because the wiki page in this is not nearly as clear. So, as a matter of fact, I may go rewrite that uh, later with my plot summary because I think it's clearer. But that that's the whole thing here. And it's funny because you've got a lot of people in this movie, but there's really one guy we're following. And much like you know we had Craig Sheffer last time, this time it's all on this male lead. And our male lead this time is Dean Winters, who – Nowadays, folks, you know him as the mayhem guy from the Allstate commercials, but he's been on a couple. Oh my of God, is that him? That's him. That's that guy. I, oh my gosh! Yeah, I didn't so realize that. If you if you settle for cut rate budgets in your horror films, this is what this is the mayhem you get. So God, he does better 
overacting in those in, the, in those commercials. Well, one could argue he has better scripts in those commercials. He was also on Law and Order and SVU. I mean, I liked him on that. I've seen him in other stuff, and he's a character actor. He's fine, but I, the thing about him that always gets me is he looks like. You know, he's a degenerate gambler or something like that. I mean, I don't know. He just has this sort of shady look to him, right? Like he's always hustling. And that's essentially his character here. He's just a hustler. Yeah, I mean, he's almost kind of comes off like the last week's uh, or last episode's uh, guy. He just looks like your standard like TV detective. Yeah, yeah. He looks, he looks so much different in like these Allstate commercials, you know, with the well, he's a lot old, crazy too. hair and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he looks different, though, with like the way, I don't know. But I guess you look different, too, if you're flying through a car or, you know, fall the back of a truck to be said you know one of the i guess the note one of the notable things about his career is he almost died from an infection he got on a on a uh film uh or a television show that he was shooting and he was you know sick for a long time so had certainly been through quite a bit but you know i don't even know what trevor does for a living i think he works for a some kind of business i don't know it's never really clear and it doesn't matter because the two people at work you need to know are uh his friend i think his friend greg doesn't matter and his boss gwen who's like a sadomasochist and they've been having a thing and like she tries to jump him at the uh you know Gee-dunk machine out there, man, over 50 cents and a chocolate bar. I, it, it, there was a lot of strange stuff going on here with good old Trevor. I mean, he was a uh, definitely not a good guy. I think that's the point, right? Like, you know, he, Gwen, and his friend's name is Brett. Uh, they're up to no good. And, and that's what we find out is that he's having an affair with the boss. He's had an affair with the, you know, whacked out goth neighbor chick. And he's had an affair with the massage chick. And he and this buddy are conspiring to kill Kirsty and get her family's considerable fortune. Yeah, all I got to say is he's got a lot of good-looking girls in his life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, old Trevor's getting around, man, no doubt. So uh, I don't I don't understand how that works. It's a supreme confidence? I'm, maybe. I don't know. I just got to say one thing, though, is he might be getting a lot of action, but not a lot of nudity. <laughs> That's one thing I kind of noticed in this movie is, like, all, like, the sex scenes and everything like that are, like, straight from, like, the WB or something like that. <laughs> It's like the most, the most like untitillating thing you could possibly see are like these scenes where it's just like, yeah, every girl's going to wear like, you know, this kind of the same lingerie set. They probably got a discount at the mall's Victoria's Secret. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of like lame sex scenes and everything. Not that I watched these type of movies for that, but <laughs> I don't know. Anything could really help this movie out. It is a trope of the genre, right? You get that kind of titillation. But I think they're taking a page out of last chapters again in that this is not about titillation. It is about remorse and seeing people punished for doing evil and things like that. I really think that's what they're going for here. I don't think any of this is there to titillate. Uh, you know, part three – that Sandy character and stuff like that, that JP was screwing in the back of the club, that clearly was there for titillation and, and things. None of these films have really got off on that. For films about sadomasochism, they don't really go there much. You know, Have you noticed that? And maybe it's because the people behind them, unlike Barker, don't really do that and aren't really into it. I don't think they get that side of the story. I saw an interview with Clive Barker a while ago, and let's just say... The less said about his life like that, the better. That guy is weird. <laughs> he has different tastes, that is for sure. And as evidenced by the things he produces and writes and what he puts out, all that stuff. I, I agree. It's very strange. But this is the the thing. The way it opens here, though, is that it's it, this. It's not the way we described it. Tre Trevor is driving, and he and Kirsty are talking about they're going to make it work. They're going to make it work, right? And then he 
gets uh, distracted or something while they're making out while driving, which is never a good idea, kids. And he runs off a bridge, right? And he can't get her out of the car, you know? And so he goes on. The next scene is he wakes up in a hospital a couple weeks later or something, and he's got amnesia. He's not really sure how it all went down. And he doesn't know she's dead, doesn't know where she is. And that's the story set in motion. And the, the next things that all happen are pretty much Trevor bumping into all these other people in his life and they all wind up dead at one point or another. And what he's trying to figure out is who's haunting him and who's giving him these weird dreams. When what we come to know is that, you know, Kirsty found out about his deal and then double crossed him. Yeah. And I kind of want to get, bring up like one of the first scenes that we see in this movie after they got a car wreck is something that kind of takes you back to, you know, part two of the Hellraiser series where he's getting brain surgery done on him. Mm-hmm. And you know they cut open the head, and it was kind of a little bit of a gruesome scene. I mean, I kind of oh, was yeah. flinching a little bit. I mean, anytime you got something with the brain and someone like poking and prodding at it, I mean, I don't care who you are, that is a little always kind of tough to watch. But I had to kind of laugh though. I mean, that little medical knowledge that I have, uh, it's like, yeah, well, poking the brain ain't gonna hurt you because there's no nerves in the brain. Yeah, but of course, you know he was he was yelling and screaming, you know, and he's putting in like the long thing into his brain. But nevertheless, though, it was still really really hard to watch. But also, I like it being kind of a nice little nod back to the second one because that's what I'm assuming why they had that in there. I, it, yeah, either that or they're foreshadowing the Travelocity commercial years later, where the doctors, you know, using the brain probes to get the guy to you know search for hotels or whatever it is. Um, well, if you added that guy, if you added that doctor in here, and maybe the camel. From Geico. That would actually be pretty good. That would have been, yeah, it would have been perfect. And then you'd had him wake up and go, if you settle for a cut rated church, you might wind up in a hospital with mayhem like these people. Uh, yeah, they could have done that had they had only known 10 years later. That would have been the thing. But no, you know what, though? This is gruesome. That's one thing I noticed that the violence and gore last time was, was a bit tamped down. We talked about that. And, but it was still effective. Here, it, they try right out of the gate to give us something really disgusting. You know, I mean, it's the full peel the scalp back. You see the saw going into the skull and that, you know, that little tap noise it makes that always gets me. I remember when they did that, one of the saw movies and it just, Oh, it just still unnerves me to think about that. And that was, I'm not gonna lie. I kind of jerked a little bit. I thought, yeah, this is squeamish. It's not scary, but it was nauseating. Well, the fact that he's, that he's awake during this whole thing too. I think that's probably the worst part about it. Well, it's also the clue that I'm like, but what I'm watching is not real because I've seen enough of these movies now to know that, well, that's clearly not, you know, he's having a Cenobite dream or he's having a dream or something like that. Like you knew that wasn't going to be for real, right? I mean, that that's all it was. But it he, wasn't the second one. Well, it wasn't the second one, but it's not in this one. So, but again, that was the doctor's whole purpose in that second one. This, again, nobody is, nobody seems to have an overriding purpose. Trevor's thing was to get rid of his wife that he didn't want to be with and get her dough. And, you know, she trades that off to him and, uh, or for him, she trades him off rather in place of herself. So I don't know, man, I, uh, I, I kind of liked the little mystery though, that goes around. I, I know what I'm watching is not real. Like I'm already hip to the idea that this is all in his head or it's a dream or, you know, he's still in the car and these are his last thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that, but I, I'm kind of going with it because it's all just so weird and non sequitur. Like he shows up at work and his boss is molesting him. Like I say, next to the baby Ruth's and then his, Coworker buddy is just acting really strange, you know. 
how are you doing? You get any real work, man? You know, and just, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff. And then you got the slutty neighbor and the acupuncture chick. And it's like all these little scenes happen, but there's never anything to lead us into one another, you know? Yeah. If that's hell, man, I don't know. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's while he's figuring out where he is. I don't think it, it ends well for him in the end, but you know, I, yeah, it seems strange. Uh, it was, it was, if the journey was good, you know, <laughs> Well, sometimes I'm, the means are greater than the NJs. So. Uh, well, I, I would hope for more in the afterlife, but uh, I don't know. What did you think all of those, all those little vignettes and things, though, as they happen? And then all these people start winding up dead in these incredibly strange ways. You know, the woman that tries to scream on the chair and he tells her to leave or whatever. And then he watches a video camera of him basically killing her doing it. It's weird. Yeah, I kind of actually kind of like that scene a little bit. It kind of reminded me back of, uh, have you ever seen House on Haunted Hill? Yes. Yeah. It kind of reminded me a lot of that with like kind of like like the weird camera work and everything. And funny enough, the guy who directed this actually was the uh, the DP on that. Yeah, the DP of that movie. So I got a lot of like flashbacks of that with like, especially like the scene where like you know he's kind of like moving the camera and seeing the death all happen in front of him and everything. And I, don't, I guess part of me was kind of a little bit mad because like again like the Cenobites, at least in this one, are kind of not going with their normal motif for killing. Right. Where, like, you know, you got this weird guy who's got, like, kind of everything, like, pulled back. I mean, he's not Chatter, the other guy with, like, mm-hmm. I don't even know what you call him now. But, uh, yeah, very, very different way of killing. But I did kind of, I did like the whole thing where it's, like, you're kind of controlling, like, the camera. It's almost, I've seen movies that kind of do that trick before where you can kind of see stuff in a camera, but you can't see it in right. you know, real life and stuff. But I, I like that. I thought that was actually kind of a neat little thing. But all during this, though, because I just recently watched Part 5. All I'm thinking about is, is he in hell? Is he in hell? Mm-hmm. Because after seeing that and just seeing this very, very similar type plot, you know, this guy kind of in this mystery, or it's almost like reverse where he's got like the detectives actually kind of going after him. It was this brought back a lot of memories of um, Inferno. Mm-hmm. So I just couldn't get out of my mind that the whole time that he was in hell, and that really kind of ruined a lot of this movie for me. I, I think, like I say, they would like for you to not think about Inferno when you watch this, but if you've seen that, and particularly if you like like us and you see it in close succession to watching this one, it's hard to not get it in your head. It's hard not to know, you know, what the deal is. And and on some level, it seems like halfway through this, they realize we we're not fooling anybody, so let's just go with it. And then it it gets a little bit sleeker, but early on they're spending too much time trying to play up the trick of is Trevor alive as he did what's happening you know when we all know all along this is happening because somehow or another he's encountered the Cenobites you know we're just waiting for the reveal of when you know how did that come to be and yeah because at this point you know that he really hasn't touched the box so why are they there and I think the big the big the big clue is they couldn't find Kirstie and it's like well the car got crashed. How couldn't they in the water? They didn't find her, really? I mean, to me, that was kind of the big giveaway that, yeah, he's dead and she's not. Uh, to me, that was also the clue of you know, how are the Cenobites here? Clearly, she's here. So that you don't bring her back unless you're going to play at that angle. I mean, that was that was what they were going for all the way. And so I just was waiting for, you know, how does she get sucked into this thing again? It's like watching John McClane in a diehard movie, you know, by the third time, it's like, dude, you really got to pursue some different occupational you know, habits. Cause you just keep, keep attracting these, these things. 
her, I do find it, I don't know, kind of ironic. Maybe, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but that Kirstie grows up to marry somebody that's pretty much her uncle Frank, right? I mean, that's, that's who Trevor acts a lot like. He's a hedonist, right? He didn't care anything about her. He's just using her and all these other women. Yeah, definitely. I mean, but I guess isn't that kind of the saying that, you know, like, all girls are going to end up marrying their fathers and stuff like that. And well, no, but her dad was way, actually an okay guy. That was, you know. <laughs> but I think maybe in a way that maybe her uncle left more of an, in, you know, mm-hmm. implant on her psyche than her father did. But I guess kind of one of the things that's kind of bugging me was, you know, in part two, we kind of we learned that her father's in hell. Yeah. She just kind of, she's okay. You now she's just like, yep, just living with that. My father's suffering. It was the dad. <laughs> he got screwed on this. And so I guess the moral there is that everybody goes, I don't know. You know, that's the other, that's the flip. Like, every, you know, nobody wants to believe in hell. Everybody believes in heaven, stuff like that. But this movie universe operates on the other end of that, that there is only hell. And it's just what degree of it you get when you die. Like it's, you know, it would have been kind of cool to bring back Julie at this point. They're going to bring back everybody else. <laughs> Why? What else is there to do with her? So, what else is there to do with Kirsty, though? Well, no, you're right. But again, that's a Doug Bradley thing. But there's a cut scene, and it's on YouTube if you want to watch it, that is an extended scene of the conversation they have around the chains and stuff. And he actually talks about Frank and Julia and her dad and where they're waiting on her and all this stuff. And that, you know, yeah, sure, you made deals with me, whatever, but I've been wanting you since forever. And that's the part I didn't get. Like, Pinhead seems to be obsessed with this chick. And I'm like, is her soul like special or something? Does she have like some special, you know, gift of soul? Is she the key like Dawn and Buffy or something? Is there something about her soul that's just exquisite that he can't get enough of? I don't get his fascination with her, other than the fact that she's figured out how to get away from him. Is that she's it? She's got a higher uh, midichlorian count than everybody else. Oh, I knew it was coming. I knew the Lucas gig was coming in somewhere with you. Every podcast, man. So, but but I, I don't know. I didn't understand that. That's what gets me. I'm like, he should be like you again. Well, the, the best part, though, is like he gets her. He's like in this very shitty room with just chains hanging around. <laughs> oh, you know, not terrible. Very atmosphere, not, not very atmospheric. I mean, you look at like the first one and how low of a budget it had. It had a lesser budget than this. Yes. And they were able to make that shit look cool. And here it's just like, yeah, we can you know go to the library and use that back uh, conference room and just turn off all the lights and just hang a bunch of chains. That's literally what they did. Oh, it's, but, but, yeah, I was shot in somebody's office, no doubt. So. Yeah, it was it was terribly, terribly just cheap. But anyways, uh, he's just sitting there. He's like, I finally got you. You're the one that got away. I've always wanted you. And she's like, I'll give you five for me. Deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like that's all it takes, really. And I, you know, he he is easy to make a deal. Like you could get Pinhead on a game show and no problem. But is it, you know? does, doesn't it go against like everything though he was though? I mean, yes. he didn't go back to the first one. I just I actually I rewatched the first one this past weekend, mm-hmm. and he was pissed off when uh, Christie's dad was killed. Yes. Remember that? He was like, who did this? Yeah. You know, it was like, he's not into that stuff. He's into who calls him. Yeah, he is. And all these other people, I mean, these girls, these three girls, sluts or not, whatever you want to call them, you know, why, why does he want them? You know, yep. it's just more souls to torture. That wasn't his, like, yeah. mode of apparandi. That was modus apparandi. It was, he's there to bring upon pleasure and pain to people who have wanted it. Right. And now it's just kind of like, now he's like, the shark and jaws where I'll take whatever I can get. Well, or, or he's like the angel of death. Like he's brought in to do a job or something, you know, I, I mean, it's like pinhead is used as just this tool all of a sudden. And that, that to me harkens back to, 
Uh, well, actually, it doesn't harken to anything. It's unlike any of the other portrayals. Because even in the third one, which was crazy, you know, it's him unbridled. So he's just evil and wants hell on earth. But he doesn't give a rip about whose soul it is. It's just as long as it's souls. And I, that's the other thing. It's like, why, you know, what kind of bargain is that? He wants her. He's telling her, I've wanted you for a long time. And like you say, oh, I'll take five others. Okay. Like, I can't have steaks. So give me, you know, a couple of burgers and some fries. We'll call it even. I mean, who are these people to him <clears throat> other than just exquisitely awful people in their own right? And all she had to do was kill him? Yeah. I mean, and pin it on Trevor in, in ways that seem incredibly obvious. You know? <laughs> I, That's what I don't get is like, okay, she's killing him. And like, what is like Pinedic also like going for like God and Lucifer and be like, nope, that one was mine. I was promised that one. I mean, how, how, are, how are the souls being transferred to him? I mean, wouldn't it have made more sense? Like maybe if the movie had a bigger budget. But if for Kirsty to kind of like trick them into using the box or opening the box with them there, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they needed to do something to, to bring it upon themselves. I'm with you. Yeah, there needed to be some – they didn't need to just get stabbed or shot in the face or whatever else she did. They needed to, to choose their own demise. Like she would like, I'll bring more people for you to tempt or whatever. But again, that changes the whole dynamic of this. And it goes to what you said. When you've got a movie that isn't written – as a Hellraiser movie, and then you try to shoehorn it in there. Well, that can be done good and it can be done poorly. And last time I thought it was done pretty well, even though it is pretty thin this time it's, it just doesn't hold up once you start thinking about it a little, little bit. It just doesn't make any sense why no, this there's, would have well, been a there's, more, there's more holes in this than Swiss cheese. <laughs> and, and the thing too is like with her, I mean, you have the perfect thing here where the husband's cheating on her. Yeah. So obviously you got a bunch of sexually perverse people, right? You know what I'm saying? And you go back to the first one, what was it about? Some guy who was sexually perverse. Some guy who was cheating on, you know, or some woman that was cheating on her husband with a guy. You could totally bring it back to that level of just having these people who are just seeking this pleasure that can't get enough. And she could have totally, you know, done that, you know, where it's like, you know, you, you get some woman, you know, maybe she's like bisexual or something like that. And she's able to like seduce her and get her to do this stuff and, you know, tell her about the box and that it's, you know, the ultimate pleasure or something you're looking for and you know, they open it up and she's able to get all these souls. I think what would have been better if they would have made Kirsty instead of a cameo made her back into the main character here. Mm-hmm. And we and follow kind of her, her doing this kind of, yeah, yeah, follow her around, you know, have her, have her be the scorned wife, you know, like you were sort of say, you know, the whole saying about, you know, women, you know, a woman mm-hmm. scorn or whatever. You could have done something like that where she was like going around getting revenge on this, saving her husband for the last one. And then also have like Pinhead having his own type of, you know, plan himself where it's like, I have her, but she's going to get me more souls. And after I get my last one, I'm going to take her anyways. Well, you know, I wonder, and it would be impossible to recreate, but if at any time there was a discussion of, we're going to show this like it's all Trevor's thing, and then halfway through it, we're going to flip and let you know that it's all Kiersey's doing, and we're going to go back and watch everything that goes down, but see how she orchestrates it. And not do it in a montage, but do it where you actually see her setting it up and stuff. That would have been interesting to follow, and it would have been a unique way to tell the story. <clears throat> and you wouldn't even have to have much more of a budget to pull that off. That's just creativity. But that's the thing that's lacking here. And I want to say that you mentioned all that about, you know, they had this chance to go with these sexually perverse people and stuff. They have divorced themselves from that part of this series long ago. They wanted nothing to do with that. Barker's name is on this only because he still has some sort of contractual right involved in it. But he had no hand in any of this. They didn't want to touch that stuff. And in some ways, I can't blame them. That's a hard thing to sell 
to a broad audience, much less your rental audience, as it were. They didn't want anything to do with that. And the other side of it is the people that are involved in this creatively now don't have any of those tendencies. They don't have any of that kind of vision. And unlike Derrickson and his partner last time, I don't think these people really had anything to say. They just thought the tension worked in that last one. We need to recreate that, but give people what they want. More Pinhead and more Kirstie. And that's really all it is. But you're not getting Pinhead and Kirstie, though. You're you're getting like very, very small doses of them throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And but they hint at that sexual stuff. I mean, it's it's all laced over this movie. And yeah, I guess you know I, I can see your point because they don't even show any boobs in this movie. I mean, everything is all kind of covered up and kind of hinted at. But I don't think that would have hurt at all with the rental audience because they know what they're getting at too with the Hellraiser movie. I mean, think, you almost yeah. kind of go back to like the Alien series. I mean, you watch like the first Alien movie; it is so sexually sexually charged with all the imagery in it. I mean, the freaking aliens got a giant penis for its head. I mean. Yeah, that's what it is. And they kind of lose that throughout the series. And I guess it's kind of the same way here. They lost it for one part. I would argue Alien 3 and Resurrection maintained that pretty heavily. Uh, they, they go back to that. Cameron was the one that really walked away from that because he wasn't interested in telling that story. He wanted to tell a war movie. And so, and you know, you can listen to the, the recording of that in our archive section, folks. We go on about two hours about it. But that, Nearly three. That's there. <laughs> that's the raw cut that nobody will ever get to hear. But, yeah, I, I mean – but they, again, I, I'm going with this. that They're not interested in telling that story. They're afraid to tell that story because, one, again, they don't have any relation to it. They don't know how to tell it. And two, the, they're more interested in leading us back down the path we went down last time, but just trying to be smarter about it, not make it so contrived around him being a cop and stuff and making it more mysterious. Because w- instead of last time, you could blame everything on he's working a case and it's a serial killer you know, and then when they reveal what it is, you're like, oh, okay. This time we don't even know what this guy does for a living. We just know what his habits are. And the the other side of it is, for whatever reason, they don't focus on Pinhead. They don't focus on Kirstie. They they just have Trevor running around. Let me give you another fix here, since we're rewriting this thing. Why not have Doug Bradley? play that merchant or whatever who just sort of steps out of the shadows and hands him the box and all that. Why couldn't that have been somebody? Why couldn't that have been the coworker? And you dress Bradley up just as a normal guy and you, you know, the whole audience knows pinheads behind this anyway. So there's no blowing any of that away. Let him be the thing that sort of is Trevor's, uh, you know, ghost of Christmas past or, or whatever, Marley walking him through all this stuff. Why not go that route and give Doug Bradley stuff to do? I don't know. Maybe it costs too much money for him. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, like, you know, this guy gives him the box and everything like that. And it's like, I still don't understand why he wants to kill Kirsty. Is it just because her money? He, he doesn't love her and he's done with her. And he knows that she's sitting on a gold mine from uncle Frank and her dad's fortune. And so he wants it. But where did he get, where does this money come from? Where does this money element come from? Oh, they were pretty well off, man. They had that house in England. They had the one in New York. Dad had an incredible job. There was dough there. And plus, Frank. I don't know, that house in England, man, that was pretty much a dump, man. uh, That was just because Frank didn't take care of it. Frank was a hedonist that ran around the world collecting strange sex objects. So clearly he had some dough somewhere. You know, we're led to believe they were not hurting for dough. You know, but so. wouldn't it have been better, though, if it would have been like this guy almost like a was like an Uncle Frank type guy where mm-hmm. he was just bored with her? I think that's it. I think that's exactly what it is. It's just not but instead of money, though. It'd been like, again, bring up the whole sexual thing of it and just being like, I'm bored with this woman. And see, and the problem with that is that they don't play that because the times Kirstie's on screen, she's all over him. 
you know, in the car, in that scene in the bedroom that's videotaped when he's giving her the gift and all that stuff. Like, all she wants him to do is put the camera down and come to bed. Like, she is she is coming on to this dude the entire time she's on the screen until she reveals to him what she's going to do to him. Uh, and that that's what I'm saying. Like, they could that could have never sold that because she plays it so sexually charged. Well, here's the thing I also want to bring up here is, mm-hmm. do we have the worst police force ever? In a film. Well, they are healthy. What's really so. but, 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 no, but when you look at like what happens at the end of the movie, I mean, we can fast forward to the end of the movie where we get the big reveal that, you know, the car crash didn't happen like it happened in the beginning that she pulls out a freaking revolver and blows his brains out. Yeah. And they just believe that he pulled out a gun and shot himself in the head driving. Yeah, they just totally go with it. That's the thing. Like all the people that were in his dreams and stuff, or there's several of them that have shown up, are people that are at the crime scene you know it's the one of the cops and it's the coroner's assistant and all this stuff it's like these people were used as figments of his imagination while he was you know breathing his last or whatever it's it's, that's that was kind of neat i thought but yeah these cops are incredibly dumb and they give a piece of evidence to her i don't care if it was an anniversary gift until the investigation's over that's in a plastic bag and sitting in a locker in you know on the fifth floor down at one PP that she does not just get to take that. Like, Oh, here you go. It's not like it's a necklace. <laughs> I'm no cop, but you know what? A woman who just survived a traumatic accident with her husband, pulling out a revolver and blowing his brains out. Mm-hmm. She seemed pretty okay. Yeah. She seemed like it was okay with her. She even had like a smirk on her face the entire time where I was just like, how are you not realizing that she shot the guy? Yeah. Okay. He's going to shoot himself while driving a car. What was the point of that? I mean, put, put two and two together here. You know, it's mm-hmm. like he didn't kill himself. I mean, they wouldn't even let her go. I mean, in the real world or whatever, they would have freaking brought her into custody. Oh, big time. Saying, yeah, we need to figure out what went on. We have a guy who's got a gunshot to the head. Yeah, we have got and to you're the only you. person there. Yeah, you're I, I watch a lot of true crime stuff too, Nick. People that try to get away with stuff all the time. They t- I'm sorry your husband just died, but guess what? You're coming down to the, the station with us so we can question you relentlessly to make sure you didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, even when even even if a child goes missing, like a kidnap thing, the parents are the ones who are the first suspects. Of course, it's always the closest. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, that's the thing is I'm like it would have been better if they had left Kirstie in the uh, investigation room or whatever, and they sort of slid that box across the table, and she said, I told you what happened, and then they walk out, and she kind of looks down at the box and just starts to grin or something, and we cut away from that. And we're like, well, is she going to you know, call Pinhead to come get her out of jail now, too? Or what? Like, if they left it like that, that would have made more sense. But they just let her walk away. That was kind of dumb. I, w- I would have almost would have not minded it either if, like, Maybe the you know the black detective would have like you know tried to interrogate her or something like that and like he kind of brings up this box and kind of like what is this mm-hmm. and she talks him into opening it up himself and calling Pinhead upon him. I mean, you could have had something like a nice little cool twist like that at the end and been like, oh my god, now Kirsty's evil or maybe Kirsty now is you know almost oh. like a almost like a Cenobite herself, not really like a Cenobite, but someone working on the Earth realm to kind of bring oh. more souls to Pinhead. That's another idea. Why did he not just turn? you know, crawfish on her and go, now you're one of us and turn her into a Cenobite. That, look, if you're a fanboy of the series and you want to see her anyway, that's cool. Then you know where she is. You she know? might even come back for more because she's not doing anything. Exactly. <laughs> they would no, they don't go that route. It's like I said, it's all in his head and she's turned it over. I, I think we've, we've exhausted it for about all of it. It was worth there, Nick. So final thoughts, recommendations and popcorn rating. What are yours for Hellraiser Hellseeker? Uh, 
part six of a series direct a video this one is not good. I mean, the last one I gave a little bit more of a pass to because it was something I wasn't expecting and it was something that was a little bit more well acted and well directed. This one is basically the same. It's a retread. You know, this is like the $15 tire you find at a ghetto at a ghetto car dealership. You know, it's a retread of an old tire and that's what exactly what this movie is. It's not very good. It's kind of cool to see Kirsty come back. It's cool always to see Doug Bradley as Pinhead, but this movie just doesn't make any sense. It's not very good. It's not well-directed. It's not well-acted. So for me, it's a small popcorn. Very, very bitter, old, stale, small popcorn. (laughs) Well, I don't disagree with your assessment of it. This is essentially the same thing done again and done lesser. I like that last one quite a bit. I'll stand by that review. I still think that was good. The fact that they do retread it. They could have called it Hellraiser retread, you know, for for that matter. And they do it so poorly. It it bugs me. This this film, it it just, uh, it annoys me because there's so much potential here, but yet it, just doesn't come to fruition you know it's just oh you see it like the genesis of the idea but then either they don't have the budget creativity or or the the foresight to or talent to pull off what you could have made it so much better i like the idea the premise of this is not bad this is way more watchable than that fourth one that was just nuts you know the third one of maybe a guilty pleasure but this one's no worse than than that I can't give it as much of a pass as I did the last one, but I won't lie to tell you I wasn't mildly entertained by what I saw. It's not great by any means. I don't want to hold it up. But, you know, name me a sixth part of any horror franchise that's worth anything. The only one I can ever think of is Friday the 13th, Jason Lives. That is a very fun film for what it is. This one works on the similar kind of level. So I'm going to give it a medium popcorn, not a strong medium, but a medium popcorn. I'll give it a pass because it's one that I would bother to watch again if it was on late night cable and nothing else was going down. You know, I, I would give it another spin. It's not so terrible that I'm sorry I put my eyes on it. I have no idea, though, where we're going next, Nick. The next movie is called Deader. And I mean, like, more dead. It's the word. I don't think that's what it means, but that's where we're going. And it stars Kari Wurr, who will forever be the hot chick from Remote Control. So, I, you know, to me. So I have no idea where we're going. I just hope it's not the same retread again, right? They can't do three for three in a row, can they? Oh, I bet they can. <laughs> they, did, they did it for seven Saw films, Jay. <laughs> Uh, I will hold up the Saw films for in their own world of logic they had their own thing going on but another podcast for another day perhaps we'll see where we go next with the 7th Hellraiser installation folks thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Filmstrip of course you can go to our website continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies you can find all of the past episodes in this retrospective and others there Hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter there. And if you get a chance to leave us a review on iTunes, it helps other people find the show. Till next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.